As we continue in our our passage from Isaiah, we're at the part that talks about what Jesus came to do. And uh, we're going to look at the part that talks about what I call the trades that are made. And when you think about how Jesus trades, he doesn't trade like we trade. He trades for our benefit, not his own benefit. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to approach God's word together, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would be at work this morning through your word, that we would come before you, um, that we would bring our very true selves to you and all of our brokenness, that we would be reminded even now as we sit beneath your word that um, your word is powerful. By your word, you spoke everything into being, and by your son's voice, he spoke and he called to the blind, and they were made to see the deaf, and they were made to hear the lame, and they were made to walk. He even spoke into the tombs themselves. And raise the dead to life. Father, we pray that you would give us the hope and the confidence that your word is still this powerful. That even this very morning you can open our eyes and unstop our ears. That you can make us walk again. That you can even bring us to life through your word. Father, we pray that you would do this even as you make the wonders of the gospel and the Christmas story real to us by your Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The children, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church now. Um, so if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, someone will take you to your, your class. Fix this thing. Um. <clears throat> On Sunday mornings, on the Sunday mornings leading up to Christmas, we've uh, taken some time to reflect on Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. Um, What we have here in Isaiah 53 is a song. Um, And so what we've been doing together on Sunday mornings is we've been looking at the different stanzas in this song. There are five stanzas in this song. Um, And so far, we've reflected on the first stanza, and we talked about Christmas and the puzzling servant that Jesus uh, is and was. Um, And then we talked about Christmas and the upside-down servant. And this morning, as we look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 that were read for us a moment ago, we're going to be reflecting on Christmas and the sacrificial servant. Um, and, and here's what I want for you today. I, I really want for you to process through these verses very personally. Um, and the reason is, is very simple, um, because understanding the good news of the gospel, of this 
of Christmas's sacrificial servant, that has the power to change everything about your life. Um, it has the power to completely reshape your life. Um, so let me start by asking you to imagine something. I, I want you to imagine that one evening you come home and you're at home watching one of your <coughs> favorite shows on TV, and during a commercial break, there's that familiar 30-second soundbite for the 10 o'clock news, and you hear the reporter say something like this, breaking news, um, a cure for liver cancer has been found, you know, details at 10 or whatever they say. And I want you to imagine that you had an acquaintance at work that you knew had recently been diagnosed with you know, terminal cancer, terminal liver cancer. And I'm sure that when you heard that announcement, you would begin to reflect. And you would take some time probably to think about what great news that must be for him or her and that person's family. What a relief that must be. But I want you to imagine it wasn't an acquaintance. What if it was your best friend? What if it was your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad? I mean, all of a sudden, that news would get bigger for you, right? Um, so much bigger. I mean, because it would hit so much closer to home for you. Now it wasn't just somebody else's relief, but your relief. But what if it was you? I mean, what if six months prior to this, you had sat in a doctor's office, and he had given you the diagnosis of terminal liver cancer. And for the last six months, you wept about the prospect of saying goodbye to your spouse, of not seeing your kids graduate from college. And for the last six months, you've been on a crazy diet that's changed everything, and you've watched your hair fall out from the chemotherapy, and you've looked in the mirror, and you've seen all the weight that you've lost, and you're just a shell of your former self. Listen, if you heard that news, I'm willing to bet you would weep for joy, that you would rejoice. I bet you would call someone. You'd pick up the phone and you'd call your parents, or you'd call your friends, or whoever, Right, I bet you would stay up, even though it's past your bedtime, <laughs> to watch the 10 o'clock news, to hear the details. I bet you would immediately begin to think, this news changes everything. Right, This news gives me a new lease on life. It's going to change the way I do everything, the way I approach everything and every relationship in my life. Now listen, I want you to hear this morning the good news of this passage like that. To hear this news personally, because it's far bigger. It's far bigger than a cure for cancer. I mean, this news embraced personally, it has the power to shape and change everything in your life at far deeper and more profound levels. The sacrificial servant Isaiah is telling us, he came to take your place, to stand in your place, to take your disease, 
to set you free, to give you peace, and to heal all of your brokenness. I mean, that good news, news like that, it has the power to change everything in your life. So here's what I want to do. I want us to talk about three things this morning as we reflect on Christmas and the sacrificial servant in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. First, we need to talk about admitting our human predicament, okay? And then second, we need to, we need to seek to understand the divine substitute we are being told about in these verses. And then finally, we need to think about what it means, how it changes everything, what it means to live out of our new gospel freedom. Okay, so first, admitting our human predicament. If you look at these verses, it's just three verses, right? Verse 4, 5, and 6. In three verses, no less than 11 times in these verses, Isaiah used the personal pronoun, we, us, and our, right? He's making a point. To know this good news that changes everything, you have to be able to admit your human predicament, and you have to be able to admit it personally, right? He knows that our hearts naturally recoil at this idea of admitting our predicament, of admitting the depth of our brokenness and our sin. You know, a few years ago, um, there were some psychologists at the University of Virginia and Harvard, and they did this really fascinating and interesting study. Um, They took college students and they they put them in a very simple room. It was a room that had nothing decorating it, and they were told to go into this room, and they were to sit at this chair, and they were to do nothing. They took their cell phones. They had no writing implements. They, they couldn't do anything, right? Nothing to read. And they were instructed to just sit there and be still for 6 to 15 minutes, And afterwards, the overwhelming majority came out and said that the experience was extremely difficult, painful, and not enjoyable. Just 6 to 15 minutes. That's ADD college students. You know, they're addicted to their cell phones and stuff. So, So they expanded the parameters to include ages 18 to 77. And they wanted to be careful that they covered a, a, a wide variety of different races, income levels, and frequency of social media use, right? And the feedback was exactly the same. Irregardless of age, race, income, frequency of social media use, we don't like the silence. We don't like to be quiet. And still, it, it really disturbs us. And so this is my favorite part of the study. They finally, they upped the ante even more. And so each participant that went into this room, they were given a choice. They could either sit alone in the quiet or there was a button on the table in front of them. And they could choose to push that button. And if they pushed that button, they would be administering to themselves an uncomfortable electrical shock, right? So 67% of men... And 25% of women, so women are a little bit smarter than men, um, that's what they chose to do. They would have rather been electrically shocked than just be still for six minutes. It's it's amazing. Listen, 
what's so disturbing, what's so uncomfortable and, um, and even terrifying about the silence? I, I really think it's as simple as this. In the silence, we can't numb or drown out the haunting realization of our very real human predicament. Right? In the silence, we are forced to reckon with the fact that we are broken people. In the silence, we come to realize that we're just shadows of what we want to be in life. We're shadows of what we were meant to be in life. And our guilt and our shame and our grief and our sorrows and our transgressions and our iniquities, all of the things in Isaiah 53, they can't, they can't be kept at bay in the silence. They come flooding in. Listen, I, I, so, I know that I need to retire this story. I've used it so many times, so I'm just going to give you the brief version. Jennifer and I <clears throat> went one night to a coffee house. It was an open mic um, kind of thing where the local musicians, college students, were given this opportunity to perform. And during this, there was this one guy who got up, and he just so looked the part. I mean, grungy, long hair, wearing this hoodie, and, you know, he had this swagger, this confident swagger as he's carrying his guitar up to the stage and situating the bar stool and everything. And it was like... It was filling us with all this great anticipation. We're like, wow, we're going to discover the next, you know, star or whatever tonight. And what he did when he sat down and before he began to play, he put these little earbuds in and he was obviously listening to some music. And so he started to play his guitar along with the music that was, I guess, being pumped into his ears. And um, it, was, it was really good. He was a great guitar player. But then he started to sing, um, and that was not so great. Um, it was awful. It was horrific. I felt, I felt so uncomfortably embarrassed for this young guy. Um, I, I only hope that someone afterwards pulled him aside and just said, in love, please don't ever do that again. Um, it was terrible. Um, and I thought about it later, and I realized, you know, I don't have any formal music training, um, but you give me some earphones turned up, and I am convinced that I missed my calling to be a rock star. Uh, I, can, I, I can sing like crazy with the earphones in because I can't really hear myself. You know, ignorance is bliss, right? Psychologist Dan Allender, he once wrote that it's in our nature to prefer the illusion because we have a deep need to be buffered from reality. Or take the popular, you know, from pop culture, uh, the author George Martin. I read one of his Game of Thrones books and he wrote, most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it. Eleven times in three verses, Isaiah hits us with personal pronouns, our transgressions, our iniquity. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. The silence haunts us and it terrifies us because in the silence we are brought face to face with reality. There's nothing to buffer anymore us from the hard truth of our human predicament. And in the silence we find out that we are just shadows of what we were meant to be. And the sum of our lives is deeply offensive to the God who made us. Why do we shift the blame 
to others all the time? Why do we shift the blame to our circumstances, the circumstances in our lives that feel so very unfair? Why are we so quick to become defensive? Why are you so terrified of criticism? Right? Sometimes we chase the illusion of freedom in deeper rebellion in our lives. But other times we keep the silence at bay with our addictions to substances, to entertainments, to relationships, to whatever the other distractions are. And sometimes we fill up our lives with the busyness of religious activity and trying to do good and trying to prove that we're okay. But even that is just a thin veneer that's keeping us from admitting our human predicament. I'm willing to bet that more than a few of you realize, even as we're talking about this, that yes, it's terrifying to personally own what we're talking about here. But if you're honest with yourself, it's also a bit enticing. I mean, to finally admit the truth of your brokenness, that has to be the first step to freedom, the first step to breaking the chains of slavery in your life, to getting off this exhausting treadmill of performance and denial and illusion. It begins here with the personal pronouns, right? We'll never understand the good news of our divine substitute until we can personally own and admit our human predicament and sinfulness. Okay, second, let's move on to understanding the divine substitution. So, We talked about pronouns in the first point, and now we're going to talk about prepositions. You weren't prepared for the grammar lesson today, I know, but, but here's what I want you to think about. The gospel, the good news, the good news is in the prepositions, right? The very heart of Christianity is in the prepositions. Um, Now, before I explain why that is, I, I want you to think Think with me about something. The Bible begins with this amazing assertion of God's power. I mean, very first line, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Right? Out of nothing, he made everything that is. But here's the point, I think, among others that, that God is making in Genesis chapter 1. He's making this point, not only that he did do all this, But he's making the point about how unbelievably effortless it was for him. I mean, right? How effortless was it? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. (laughs) And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. (laughs) I mean, all he, he never lifted a finger. He simply spoke. And everything that is came into being effortlessly. But listen, the thousands of pages in your Bible that follow that first page, they are telling you this. Creation was effortless, but redemption wasn't. In other words, God could say, let there be light, and there was light. But he couldn't just say about our human predicament, let there be forgiveness. Why is that? It's because God is unchangeably holy. 
and his holy justice, it has to be satisfied. There is no way around it. And so, the gospel, the good news, is in the prepositions, right? Words like for and upon and with and on. You might even remember earlier verses that we looked at, and we talked about how this servant was marred beyond human semblance. If you looked at him and saw him, you wouldn't just think, why is that man beaten like that? You would say, is that even a man? He was disfigured, beaten to a pulp. Why? Verse 5, he was wounded, preposition, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. With his stripes or with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. His servant had to come and be a sacrifice for you in your place to satisfy divine justice. His wounds. An author, T.R. Burks, wrote this. Each sin of every sinner would be like a separate wound in the heart of this man of sorrows. Yours and mine Our very real personal sins of greed, of lust, of anger, of self-centeredness, of jealousy, those were the wounds he bore. The prepositions, they point us to a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice who came to stand and be in our place and to be a sacrifice for us. Look, the Old Testament sacrificial system, I understand it's foreign and it's mysterious to us. There are are a lot of well-intentioned read-through-the-Bible plans that die as soon as they get to Leviticus. You know that, right? Um, Leviticus is this book that's the—it was the sacrificial manual for the people of, of Israel, their system of sacrifices and ceremonies, and the language of sacrifice and of prepositions like we're talking about right now, it may be a little foreign to us, but it wasn't foreign to the people Isaiah was writing to. I I had to cut a lot of details for time, but I just want you to think with me for a moment about the granddaddy of all sacrifices described in Leviticus. It was called the whole burnt offering, right? See, when you came to the tabernacle to offer this whole burnt offering... You were very involved in that process, personally so, right? You took from your herd of livestock, you know, being a nomadic tribe that Israel was at this time, that's your only possession of any value or currency in the world. And you had to take your very best, right, a male without blemish, and bring it to the sacrifice to watch it go up in smoke. Listen, you brought this bull to the tabernacle, and the priest had you do something very symbolic. He had you place your hand on or upon, prepositions, the head of that bull. It was symbolic. Because you were saying, this bull is going to take my place. He's going to get what I deserve. But here's the thing. 
After that, the priest was not going to do your dirty work for you. See, you had to take the knife and you had to slit that animal's throat and bleed it until it died. That's personal. That's up close and uncomfortable. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, struggling with with that animal. Muscles tense, you're so engaged in that very moment. And when the animal finally gave up his life and expired, you had to hack and butcher that animal to pieces and arrange them just so on the altar and the fire. And you had to take the entrails, the guts out, and you had to clean them. You had to burn those too. You had to burn everything. Everything was burned. You know, I love, I love when I drive into my neighborhood and I can smell somebody grilling. It's awesome. This was not that. Entrails, hooves, fur, it stunk. It was pungent. It was awful. Listen, so very personal. All your senses were engaged. They were assaulted. And over and over and over, when this sacrifice is described in Leviticus, there's this interesting repeated refrain that shows up. Repeated again and again. And it was this. An aroma pleasing to the Lord. Pungent, gross, and disgusting to us. But it was pleasing to God. Why was that smell pleasing to him? Because it was, it was the smell of substitution. Right? And God loves the smell of substitution. That's what the whole Bible is about. Right? Christmas, Jesus, he was born to die. Right? He was the perfect male without blemish. He came to be consumed by the fires of God's justice for you in your place. But the aroma was pleasing to God, not just because it satisfied his holy justice. But you know why creation was effortless and redemption wasn't? Why the aroma of substitution really was pleasing to God? It's because God wasn't just after satisfying his holy justice. He was also satisfying his holy, his perfect, his full, and his complete love for you in substitution. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus came to be crushed for our iniquities. And then if you skip down to verse 10, it tells us that it was the will of the Lord or better that it pleased the Lord to crush him. He loves the smell of substitution. And at the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He was the ultimate burnt offering in your place, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Because here's what happened at the cross. The justice of God and the love of God came together, and they embraced at the cross. Truth and grace collided at the cross, right? Righteousness and mercy, they met at the cross. 
and they kissed. The full and complete satisfaction of God's justice and his love for you. Now listen, to understand this news, the divine substitute given for you, I'm telling you, that changes everything. That has to reshape everything in your life. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once explained the difference uh, between news and advice from the perspective from the perspective of the New Testament culture, and I'm just going to paraphrase it and be a little briefer, but see, in that day, the, all the cities, they were surrounded by walls, these tall walls um, to protect them. And if your king had gone out with, the tr- with his troops to do battle with a neighboring nation, there would be watchers posted on the city walls, and they were waiting for the messenger to come back from the battle lines. And listen, if the messenger came back with advice, with advice, it was this. We are losing the battle. The lines have been pushed back. Arm yourselves because you're going to have to fight for your life. And it produced a lot of activity, um, a lot of frantic activity, right? Get ready to defend the city. But if the messenger came back from the battle lines and he didn't have advice, but he had news, it would have been this. Your king has been victorious for you. Your king has won the battle. Prepare for his arrival. And listen, that would have produced a lot of activity too. Right? But very different. The activity that's produced by advice is driven by fear in our lives, right? To be better, to clean your life up, right? To make amends for all your sins so that you can find out, so that you can hope to be acceptable and lovable, hide and seek and try to avoid reality. But the activity produced by news, it is driven by joy. You are accepted. You are loved. You are free. Live out of that joy. On the cross, Jesus our sacrificial servant, he was treated as if he had done everything you have done in your life so that you could be treated as if you had done everything he did and know that you are loved and accepted because of that. And that news is a game changer. Okay, last point here, the final point living out our gospel freedom. I'm going to be brief, and I'm going to limit limit myself here to the two benefits of Jesus' sacrifice that Isaiah mentions in these verses. There are more, but these are huge. He tells us in verse 5 that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then he tells us that it is with his stripes or his wounds that we are healed. Jesus' sacrifice purchased peace for you, now, now listen, we've got to think this out a little bit. Do you know what this means? REM, um, not the band, um, rapid eye movement, right? Doctors tell us that when we go to sleep, that it's not really the amount of sleep that matters so much, but the depth of sleep. We need to achieve REM in order to get the rest we really need. See, it's not so much about the length 
but the depth of rest. To embrace the divine substitute for you is to enter into the deepest rest possible. You know, I I think I understand this um, because I'm just like you. (laughs) And I know that for some of you, the the shame is just so thick in your life that it leads you to think often, this feels too good to be true. And I want you to hear this good news personally this morning, that whatever you've done and wherever you've been and whoever you are, you cannot out the grace of God. Listen, your biggest, most besetting sin in life, it is no match for His grace. His Son became a sacrificial servant for you, and He did not fail in what He came to do. He became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. That's how Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthians. And do you know what this means? It means this. You can finally be still. Right? You can really and truly rest. The silence doesn't have to disturb you or threaten you anymore. You can be still and know that you are completely loved. You could not be loved anymore than you are right now because of Jesus and what he has done for you. There is nothing left for you to do to satisfy his justice. There's nothing left for you to do to earn his love or his approval. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to fear criticism. You no longer have to mount your defenses. You no longer have to work to escape and numb yourselves. He's done everything necessary for you. So a friend of mine, this is another favorite story of mine, a friend of mine told me about a time he was in Walmart and there was a a crying child an aisle over, um, which is pretty familiar if you've been to Walmart recently. But he, he thought, you know, obviously it's a kid throwing a fit because he didn't get what he wanted, the toy, the candy, whatever, and went around the corner of the aisle. And what he saw instead was this little child. He was screaming and tears coming down his face, and he was, his face was red. He was panicked because he was alone. And he had gotten separated from his mother, and so as my friend's watching this and he's wondering what to do, the mom runs around the corner of the other aisle and scoops this child up into her arms. And he he said, you know, it was just fascinating. Because this child who was panicked, screaming and crying, he said he watched. And 30 seconds later, that child was fast asleep in his mother's arms. It's not the length of rest, but the depth of rest. Listen, come into the arms of the sacrificial servant, right? And you can find peace and rest. It changes everything. Okay, real quick, Isaiah also says that we're healed with the servant's stripes. The Bible tells us the story of good news, right? Because of Jesus, the sacrificial servant, We have this very real hope. We have this hope that one day, someday, Jesus is going to come back for his bride, the church. And he is going to heal all the brokenness in the world and in our lives. 
He's going to heal it all completely and fully and finally. And that's this incredible promise, right, that changes the way you deal with every hurt, with every pain, with every sorrow, with every disappointment in this life because of what's coming. One of my favorite passages of Scripture that speaks about this hope that's coming, this final healing, it's in Revelation 21. Many of you probably know it too because John wrote wrote there that one day Jesus will come. And he will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. Every tear. Right? And that day, he says, there will be no more mourning. There will be no more death. There will be no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And God's people hold tightly and dearly to that hope in the future. I'm going to save say more about that for another time um, because I need to mention this before we end. Is this. We often forget the very next verse in Revelation chapter 21, which says this. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. See, that's not in the future tense. That's in the present tense. What's Isaiah saying? What is Jesus saying from his throne? He's saying when you come to this sacrificial servant, when you admit your brokenness personally, and you embrace his divine substitute, when you drop your defenses before him, and you submit to him, not just in the future, but right now, today, he will begin to make you new. He will begin to heal you and make you like his son. He'll turn you into the kind of person who starts loving others sacrificially. He'll turn you into the kind of person who gives up their wealth generously for others. He'll turn you into the kind of person who suffers long with others. He'll turn you into the kind of person who is quick to show grace and love to others. He'll turn you into the kind of person who cares more about others than you do yourself. Hopefully you know what I'm saying here. He'll make you new. He'll heal you. What he'll do is he will make you more like his son, Jesus. He will do it. You know, the Israelites, they have this super involved sacrificial system and ceremony, right, that communicated God's love of substitution, not just to their ears, but to all their senses. In a moment, we're going to come to this table. And we'll take bread, and we'll take wine, and you'll be able to hold it and touch it. You'll be able to smell it. You'll be able to taste it. And you will have the gospel spoken to all your senses to remind you this very day that if you're a believer... Jesus, the sacrificial servant, he was given for you, that you might have life in him, that you might have peace in him, that he would heal all your brokenness and begin even now to do that. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We we thank you 
that it does bring us face to face with reality, a reality that we admit we are, we are loath to admit. We don't want to own up to our very deep brokenness and sin. But Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would take that first step towards freedom, that we would come for the first time this morning or for the thousandth time back to the arms of Jesus to be reminded that he was given for us the chastisement that brought us peace it was upon him you have laid upon him all our iniquities father would you write this good news so deeply upon our hearts that it would indeed change us that we would begin to live out of the peace that is ours because of Jesus, that we would begin even now to understand the healing that the gospel produces in our lives as it changes us to look more like Jesus, even as we await that final day when he will return for his bride and mend every bit of brokenness that there ever was. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.